Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Today's episode is brought to you by the American Society of Magical Negroes, a fresh satirical comedy about a secret society of magical black people starring Justice Smith, David Allen Greer, Ann Lee Bogan, and Nicole Byer. As an official selection of Sundance 2024, the American Society of Magical Negroes has been heralded by critics as an uproariously sharp-edged satire and a must-see. Only in theaters this Friday. Visit the American Society of Magical Negroes Film.com to get tickets now. You're ready for a comeback. And with Purdue Global, you can do more than take classes. You can take charge of your story, of your career, of your life. Earn a degree you can be proud of and get an education employers respect. It's time, your time, not just to go back to school, but to come back and move forward with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback at purdueglobal.edu. Hi, this is Paris Hilton, and you're listening to the History of the World's Greatest Nightclubs, a 12-part podcast about the iconic venues and people that revolutionized how we party. A song can change your life, and that's what Free by Alternate did for me. I heard it for the first time at a club in New York, not long after I left Provo Canyon School, where I experienced mental and physical abuse that left me with trauma I'm still healing from. But in the late 90s, this song saved me. The song starts with sorrow. You can hear it in the lyrics. The despair in the song and the despair I was feeling was undeniable. But like the journey I was about to go on, the song evolved, transforming into something uplifting, something beautiful. Those lyrics filled me with an unimaginable amount of hope. That song became my anthem, and Alternate's voice became my guiding light. Even now, years later, whenever I play this song at a show, the iconic opening chord progression brings me to tears. I hear the pulsing beat, and I'm taken back to the nights I spent singing along to the words, you're free to do what you want to do. It's euphoric and reminds me of my favorite nights in clubs around the world. The dance floors and the DJ booths that welcomed me with open arms and changed my life. So who better to tell the story of 12 of the world's greatest nightclubs than the voice behind the anthem of freedom, joy, and possibility. Alternate herself. I'll leave you in good hands. What Paris felt all those years ago, singing to my song was how I felt growing up in Baltimore running around the underground dance scene, it was everything to me. It was how I found my purpose. So I'm inviting you to join me on this nightlife journey as you've never experienced it before. From London Audio, iHeartRadio, and executive producer Paris Hilton, 
This is the history of the world's greatest nightclubs. Some of the world's most legendary nightclubs were known for the unique community they welcomed, others for the cultural movements they started, and some for the musicians and DJs they introduced to the world. The best nightclubs champion new music, transform lives, and provide an escape from life's pressures. One more thing. This is the history of some of the world's greatest nightclubs, not a ranking of every club in the world, but an exploration of the spaces, people, and club nights that made a lasting impact on nightlife and music today. I'm your host, Ultra Nate. I'm a singer, songwriter, and musician, and I found my purpose in club culture. This is episode one, the Music Institute in Detroit, Michigan. There's something about dancing in a dimly lit room that gives you the power of anonymity. When you're moving in time to the music as a single body in a sea of people, your self-consciousness begins to float away. You realize that everyone is so caught up in the moment that no one's really paying any attention to you. No one is looking into who you are outside of those nightclub walls, and it's liberating. You can leap across the dance floor, sing at the top of your lungs, and wear clothes that you'd feel too shy to wear during the harsh, judging eyes of the daytime. Because during the day, you have to show up as the version of yourself that the world expects you to be. But at night, you can escape. At least that's how Sierra Donovan felt in Detroit in the 1980s. At the time, I was a relatively new federal agent working criminal investigations. Being an African-American woman in law enforcement already came with significant challenges, but even more so in Detroit, because the city's Black community had a long, fraught history of animosity with the police. In 1967, after decades of entrenched segregation, institutional racism, and police brutality, Detroit saw an intense clash between the city's Black residents and the police department. A local club was hosting a welcome home party for two Black veterans that had just returned from Vietnam when the police shut the party down and arrested over 80 people. The act of hostility sparked protests that became violent when the police intervened, leading to 43 deaths and more than 7,000 arrests. The riots had left a sense of unease and distrust between Black communities and the cops. And as a Black woman, Sierra could see and feel that tension in both her local community and at her job. I had started working for the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco and Firearms and Explosives in 1984. The city was still trying to heal and recover from the 1967 riots. But by the 80s, Detroit had to deal with a new existential crisis. It was the Reagan era, and deindustrialization had left a lasting dent on the city's economy. Detroit was really struggling. Manufacturing factories had abandoned American cities like Detroit for cheaper labor elsewhere. The neighborhoods they had once brought to life became desolate industrial wastelands. And the communities that had relied on those jobs struggled with high levels of crime and unemployment. 
there was a lot of violence. There was a lot of illegal drug trafficking. It really affected the community. Our young people, younger people seemed to be lost and in the street. There was this epidemic of drugs, heroin, cocaine, and crack cocaine. And it was a pretty sad state at that time. But despite all the challenges and obstacles in its way, Detroit was resilient. The city had always been a force to reckon with. It was the home of Motown, after all, ushering in a legendary era of Black music. In the midst of the civil rights movement, Detroit was no stranger to adversity. And like in so many of the cities we'll spend nights in during this series, in Detroit, creativity was often born out of the desire to find hope in the darkness. But back to Sierra. Sierra had a pretty intense day job. So when she got home after a long day of dealing with that heaviness, she really wanted to relax. And luckily, she'd made a home for herself to do exactly that in a historical area of Detroit known as Palmer Park. I lived on a street called Whitmore Plaza. I lived on the first floor. Beautiful, beautiful apartment buildings that were very large. And after long, stressful days at work, it was the place she went home to retreat and rest. I went to bed early and I had to get up early. But then she got some new neighbors. Two young men moved into the basement apartment below her. Her routine of going to bed early and waking up early was interrupted by their late night jams. As soon as I would get in bed mm, and I'd fall asleep real good, 12 o'clock, 1 o'clock, 2 o'clock, a.m., you'd hear this loud music. It was very disruptive. Sierra couldn't make out the words or the melody, but she could hear the muffled pounding bass and loud electronic music. At first, she tried to ignore the sounds floating up from below her, but it went on and on every night for days and then weeks. And I just said, enough is enough. So finally, I made it downstairs. I got my pajamas on, bathrobe, and those pink curlers in my hair. And I had to bang on the door. That's how loud the music was. I'm banging, banging on the door. So finally, you know, the two young men come to the door, open it up. Those two young men were Alton Miller and Shay Damier. But back then, those names didn't mean anything to Sierra. They were just the names of the men making way too much noise while she was trying to fall asleep. I had to plead with them almost every night to turn the music down because I had to go to work. I never told them what I did for a living. And then it just basically became very confrontational and I was irate and they really acted like they just didn't care. They didn't care who I was, they didn't care what I had to say and they basically ignored me. It was a cycle. Sierra would try to go to sleep. Alton and Shay would start playing loud music. And then Sierra would bang on the door asking them to turn the music down. So that went on for a couple of weeks. And then finally, I had had it. At this point, I'm ready to call the police and take some action, right? But eventually, Shay and Alton relented and explained why they were playing music every night. They said, well, we're opening up a club. You're going to love it. Blah, 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 blah. That's all you need to say to me is club. 
Something that you need to know about Sierra is that while she was a federal agent, Sierra also really loved to party. I feel like I was born in a bar, in a club. I feel that way in my soul. When I walk into a club and I see people having a good time, I feel we're just doing what is innate within us. For her and many of us, going to the club was a spiritual experience. I believe humans are social creatures and music brings people together from all walks of life. It's love, it's togetherness, unity, us loving and accepting each other. So as she stood outside their apartment, Sierra was all ears. A new club? Instantly, she was sold. And then they said, we're going to give you a membership. And the membership to the club came with a personalized card, a cream-colored rectangle with the club's name printed in green at the top and Sierra's name handwritten below. It would get her into the club for free. So one night, Sierra went to downtown Detroit and walked until she reached 1315 Broadway. She walked into the four-story shoe store that had been renovated and turned into a club with an incredible sound system. This was the Music Institute. The club was an old industrial building. The factory's floor tiles had been sanded down and replaced with a dance floor. And in the main room, there was one strobe light and one single smoke machine. But art brought the room to life. There were abstract expressionist pieces painted by a local artist hung up on the walls and a mural painted by an English artist named Sarah Gregory. A row of clocks showing what time it was in London, Paris, and New York positioned Detroit as central to the culture. And all around the room, the dark walls were covered in poems and abstract, surreal thoughts hand-painted in white. It was unlike any club Sierra had ever stepped into before. As she walked in, all her thoughts and worries began to fade away. The details of what she could see around her began to blur. And it didn't matter who she was during the day or who anybody else in the club was once they hit that dance floor. So when I think about, well, why are clubs so important in music? It's what it does to us. We forget color. We forget gender. We forget that sense of titles. At the Music Institute, Sierra wasn't Sierra Donovan, the federal agent. She transformed into a dancer. Everyone will tell you when Sierra walks in, she has one mission. She's on the dance floor. The dance floor gave her a sense of anonymity that allowed her to just be herself. We were a family without even really knowing who was who. Everybody felt accepted. We weren't there judging. Nobody was judging anyone. It was just this incredible energy of love. And from the time they opened until they closed, I was there and I danced. I danced the night away. You see, at the Music Institute, it didn't matter who you were or what you looked like. 
because people didn't come to hang out with a certain crowd, to see celebrities, or to be noticed by people. It was electric. The vibe was electric. It was the music that brought people into the club because a whole new genre was being created right there in Detroit. A new genre that you might now know and love by the name of techno. But at the time, Sierra couldn't describe it. She just knew how it made her feel. It was like fire. Your body being on fire on the dance floor. A fire that could not be contained. You didn't want nobody to put the energy of your fire out. You wanted to dance and dance and dance. Sierra had such an incredible experience at the Music Institute that she forgave her noisy neighbors. I didn't care how loud they played the music at night because what they opened up at that point, it was groundbreaking. It was trailblazing. It was unbelievable. The groundbreaking new sound that was championed by the Music Institute would go on to become one of the most important genres in the history of clubbing. Because techno was born in Detroit. This is the story of how a downtown Detroit Blade Runner-esque nightclub that was only open for 18 months championed the birth of techno and became home to some of the most influential DJs and producers of its time. It's about how young Black men in Detroit pioneered a new sound that would go on to revolutionize club culture and inspire a generation to believe that anything was possible. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80. Join us March 20th live from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Today's episode is brought to you by the American Society of Magical Negroes, a fresh satirical comedy about a secret society of magical black people starring Justice Smith, David Allen Greer, Anne Lee Bogan, and Nicole Byer. As an official selection of Sundance 2024, the American Society of Magical Negroes has been heralded by critics as an uproariously sharp-edged satire and a must-see. Only in theaters this Friday. Visit the American Society of Magical Negroes film.com to get tickets now. Christian Hill is a documentary filmmaker from Detroit. He was in high school in the 80s, and for him, growing up in Detroit was an inspiration. It was beautiful. I grew up at a time where, I mean, Detroit was considered a Black city. So everybody I knew, from the mayor to the uh, butcher baker and the candlestick maker, they all looked like me, you know? And so I always had uh, examples of what 
Black excellence looked like. I always had examples of what life and things could be if you put your mind to it. People in Detroit grew up together and formed deep bonds with their neighbors and friends by going to and throwing parties. I grew up with my aunts living next door. That's Alton Miller. Remember him? One of the guys that kept Sierra up at night playing music in his apartment. And yes, one of the founders of the Music Institute. So my mom and my aunts, they would have these very, very nice house parties. They would prepare food. They would prepare the music. Alton's family never missed an opportunity to celebrate. And her parties were pretty famous. There would be cars parked lining the street from the top of the main street all the way down. Can you imagine 50, 60, 100 people inside a a two-bedroom flat? I mean, just imagine. Alton grew up in an intergenerational community that really valued music, family, and celebration. And it was at those parties that he experienced some of his most formative musical memories. was my first experience is in regards to dance music and that culture. That aspect of people coming together and communing with music and food and things like that. Listening to music at his family's house parties was different to listening to it on the radio. My aunt, she had a very, very good sound system. The kind of sound system that shakes the whole room. So very first time that I experienced, you know, that muffled bass sound before you go into a club that just sticks with you. It has stuck with me from then all the way up until now. Just that that it's something about that muffled bass sound before you actually get in the club, you know. It's the sound of anticipation of knowing you are about to step into a night that could change your life. And after experiencing that sound for the first time at his aunt's house, Alton couldn't help but spend his life chasing nights that sounded just like that. When he was a teenager, Alton and his friends started going out to clubs in Detroit. But they were looking to experience more than what their hometown had to offer. Upon graduation, between, let's say, 84 and 85, 86, we did a lot of traveling. And when I say we, I mean the guys that I eventually opened up the Music Institute with, George Baker, Shade Amir. When we started traveling in the mid-80s to Chicago to Frankie Knuckles' private parties, the Paradise Garage in New York was underground, the Music Box was underground. It was during their trips to clubs in cities like Chicago and New York that Alton, George, and Shay cultivated their musical taste. We were just club kids, you know, going into clubs, two, three o'clock in the morning, coming out the next day, just dancing. So that was just amazingly beautiful. Alton, George, and Shay spent those formative years partying across the country. They learned about emerging styles of music. They kept up with new fashion trends and saw how much more vibrant and spectacular their nights could be. They found themselves on the dance floors of some of the legendary clubs we'll explore later on in this series. 
listening to new music at Paradise Garage in New York, and dancing until the morning at Warehouse and the Music Box in Chicago. But when the sun came up and they went back to Detroit, they realized that they just couldn't find a club that compared to what they'd seen during their nights partying in other cities across the country. So they went back home to Detroit, determined to start their own club. They had a vision to have an incredible club, incredible music, incredible sound, and bringing people together from all walks of life. Because that's what they saw in Chicago, in New York. Was just an ode, a nod to what we had experienced in that search for the ultimate dance and the ultimate sound system and the ultimate party. We started doing private parties, private loft parties. Then, after months of searching for a venue, they decided to lease a place in downtown Detroit. But back then, nothing was happening downtown. We're talking Detroit in the mid-80s. Doom and gloom, high unemployment. At 5 o'clock in the afternoon, after workday, downtown Detroit was just like an abandoned city. Just nothing. It was filled with boarded up stores and abandoned buildings, but Alton and his friends saw potential in one of the buildings they toured. 1315 Broadway. It was an old, abandoned four-story shoe store. It didn't look like much. I mean, when we opened the door, there was still shoes there from the 30s and the 40s and the 50s, like in the basement. But underneath the shoes and boarded up windows was a building that would become a sanctuary for Detroit's musicians. My name is Alan Oldham. I am originally from Detroit, Michigan. Alan was a radio DJ in the 80s when the Music Institute first opened up. I was doing a radio show at the time, and it was on WDETFM in Detroit. For most of my run, I was on from midnight to 3 a.m. on Friday nights. So what I would do, basically I would get off from my radio show and I drive up 2nd Avenue in Detroit and drive straight to the club. And around 3 a.m. is when it was really beginning to pop. The second floor was the heart of the Music Institute. It's where the DJ booth lived. From up there, the DJs could see the whole dance floor. Up there, they were like kings, performing alchemy with each new track they played, spinning gold on the decks. The DJs used to kind of hold court But they weren't untouchable. In fact, if you tried, you could get close enough to the booth to watch their every move. For me, it's a marriage between the DJ and the patron. So it's being up close and personal with them because for me, it's so magical. I like to see the DJ because I like to see his technique, his style, his skill set. For Sierra, it was all about exchanging energy with the DJ. DJs will tell you when no one is dancing, they feel that they are not moving the needle. You can always find me right at the DJ booth dancing up close and personal because every time they move that needle, I feel it. I feel their pulse on the needle. I feel what they're doing. And my own energy connects with them and I'm letting them know, hey, I feel you, I see you, because I'm dancing. Alan spent all of his time at the Music Institute on the dance floor, too. 
I was a dancer on the dance floor. I, I, and everybody was. And what people wore to the Music Institute reflected that. The style was... What we in Detroit call dress to sweat. Because people came to the Music Institute to dance. Everybody was dancers. It wasn't no kind of wallflowers, you know. We didn't really have conversation. At the Music Institute, you stayed on the dance floor. And it was packed. And that was our mission. And Sierra took her mission very seriously. For me, it was being on that dance floor and sweating my hair out from the time I got there until the time I left. Like, there were times when I would dance and it felt as if no one else was there. But me, the DJ, the sound system, and the dance floor. Freedom was the hallmark of the dance floor. We were like children in a playground, in a dark playground where it was all about the sound, the music. I would do this dance where I leaped across the room. I would start off doing this running, right? And then all of a sudden I would leap and it was as if I was floating in air. I still cannot believe that I could leap that far. Eventually, the dancing caught up with her. My arthritis is not that serious in my kneecaps. But when I think about a little ache and pain that I have in my body, that started with the Institute because we danced so hard. The Music Institute was the place that welcomed young Black DJs in and gave them a space to showcase their new sound to a packed house including three DJs that would soon pioneer a revolutionary new genre, the Belleville Three. You see, these DJs weren't playing the R&B music that people were used to. They were experimenting and creating a brand new sound, techno, a music genre that would go on to be played all around the world. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other. As Infinity presents... A new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80. Join us March 20th live from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Today's episode is brought to you by the American Society of Magical Negroes, a fresh satirical comedy about a secret society of magical black people starring Justice Smith, David Allen Greer, Anne Lee Bogan, and Nicole Byer. As an official selection of Sundance 2024, the American Society of Magical Negroes has been heralded by critics as an uproariously sharp-edged satire and a must-see. Only in theaters this Friday. Visit the American Society of Magical Negroes film.com to get tickets now. While the founders of the Music Institute were being exposed to music during their club visits to Chicago and New York, there was another group of friends falling in love with actually making music. 
This is uh, Juan Atkins, the originator of techno music. Juan grew up in Belleville, a city next to Detroit. I went to high school in the late 70s, and I was making music all during my high school years. For me, it was just music, music, all music, sleep, eat, breathe music. Juan had always loved music, and during his teen years, he started experimenting with more electronic sounds. And I was making music with a Korg MS-10 synthesizer. The cool thing about the Korg MS-10 is that you could use white noise and pink noise and, and manipulate the filter to make, like, kick drum sounds, snare sounds, hi-hat sounds. So you could make a whole drum kit with this, uh, with this synth. Influenced by house music and electronic bands like Kraftwerk, Juan started to find his own sound. Detroit was an industrial city filled with factories, technology, and machines. And the soundscape of the city inspired musicians like Juan to put an electronic twist on their music. So these sounds didn't sound like the normal instruments that we were accustomed to. It took the assembly line, machinery, and made music out of it. Revolutionizing the sound of dance with new technology, Techno harkened back to the city's industrial past and tapped into a futuristic vision for what it would become. Techno music was all futuristic. We weren't playing by any rules. A new genre had been born, and Juan Atkins, alongside his friends and fellow DJs Kevin Saunderson and Derek May, were its founding fathers. I met Kevin and Derek in high school. We went to a high school called Belleville High School. They grew up together and started making music in Belleville. So they went on to become known as the Belleville Three. The three DJs who gave birth to techno. The most legendary nightclubs launch careers. They give musicians a home to experiment in a wide open space filled with people who just want to dance. And the Music Institute did exactly that. But I mean, it was, it was our place. So this is where we cut our teeth. The Music Institute was instrumental to the birth and growth of techno because the three of them were all regulars there. In fact, Juan, Kevin, and Derek all spent time as resident DJs at the club. 87, 88, 89. Those guys were pretty much all already doing what they were doing. They were already making the music. Some things had already been released, but they were making the names for themselves. You know, the sound was being pushed out there, but the Music Institute was able to catapult and was a catalyst for becoming that. So yeah, Music Institute was very, very, very integral. I think its biggest legacy was just giving techno a platform and pushing that sound forward and giving those artists a way to, to have their voices heard through their music. Juan and the rest of the Belleville Three cut their teeth at the Music Institute. It was the place where they tried out new songs, honed in their sound, and experienced what it was like to play their own songs to a crowd. They came and saw it, full circle, from the studio to the club.
As they stood behind the DJ booth, they watched people dance to the music they'd spent years making and knowing that with the right song, they could get the whole room moving. Here's Sierra again. Those three gentlemen brought such a force when they played. They were bold. They were brash. They were confident. These young men were setting a chart, blazing a trail that I know darn well that they didn't realize what they were doing back then. Kevin Saunderson, who was one of the founding members of Inner City, went on to score number one hits with songs like Good Life and Big Fun, which I know personally I have danced to a million times and heavily influenced my early productions. And Juan Atkins, who was a member of Cybertron and released music under the name Model 500, went on to start his own record label. It's been an incredible journey for me to watch these young Black men evolve the way they did from the Music Institute. The Music Institute gave them a place to cultivate their musical style and experiment on the way to becoming the musicians they are now. But back then, they were just young Black men doing what they loved. And so were the clubbers who were dancing in the midst of it all. I was just a young woman dancing my heart away at the Music Institute. When I got off of work and the midnight hour struck, I knew where I was going to be on a Friday and a Saturday. And that's all that mattered. And it was just love, pure, pure energy, you know, floating across the dance floor. The Music Institute was only open for 18 months. Like so many other incredible clubs, it was deeply loved. But in the end, they weren't making enough money to pay the bills. So the Music Institute celebrated its final night in November 1989. Allen can still remember it vividly. It was the most crowded it had ever been. I remember Derek was the DJ and he played Pacific State by 808 State. He played it like two or three times during the course of the night. If you know the song, I mean, it's, you know, it's got the, the saxophone parts in it. It's the final night of the club. So that means it's kind of a funeral song as well. That's what always will hit me. The club had only been in their lives for 18 months, but it had really meant something to the clubbers who spent so many of their nights there. I was there dancing and we all cried when it was over. When the lights went out, we cried. But while that final song felt like an ending, the last night at the Music Institute wasn't a funeral. It was one of those things where it's meant to just come in and make its impression and influence a generation. Without Detroit dance music, I don't see dance music as being complete. Techno gives us the completion of what America brought to the dance floor. Techno was born in Detroit, but there weren't enough people telling that story. Christian vowed to keep it alive, so he directed a documentary feature about the birth of techno called God Said Give Them Drum Machines. So just over the years, I had enough ammo to where by the time I empowered myself to put a camera in my hand, that this would be one of the first stories that I would be able to tell. The richness of growing up in Detroit and being surrounded by innovative young Black men gave Christian and others like him the inspiration to chase their dreams. And the legacy of the Music Institute continues to inspire the next generation of young Detroiters. Here's Sierra again. 
And when I think about our young artists today, right here in Detroit, whether they're DJs or producers, songwriters, for me, what I see is them just following something that's inside of them that's saying, here, this is what you came here to do. And when you do that, you're bound to be successful. You're bound to be heard. You're bound to be known. Some of the world's greatest nightclubs are great because of the people who went there, the cultural movements they started, or the DJs they introduced to the world. By becoming a home for three of the pioneering DJs that created techno, the Music Institute's musical legacy carries incredible weight. But what made the Music Institute great was that it inspired a generation of young Black people to believe that they could achieve beyond what they could see. It was all Black kids, you know. It was all, you know, Black men, young Black men. And they just put all this stuff together. Our DJs, you know, broke this music. I'm very proud of that fact. In the next episode, we're going to make our way over to New York City to Danceteria, the iconic club where New Yorkers found a place to escape and celebrate life in the midst of one of the city's most turbulent decades. The History of the World's Greatest Nightclubs is produced by Neon Hum Media for London Audio and iHeartRadio. For London Audio, our executive producers are Paris Hilton, Bruce Robertson, and Bruce Gersh. The executive producer for Neon Hum is Jonathan Hirsch. Our producer is Rufaro Faith Mazarura. Navani Otero and Liz Sanchez are our associate producers. Our series producer is Crystal Genesis. Our editor is Stephanie Serrano. Samantha Allison is our production manager, and Alexis Martinez is our production coordinator. This episode was written by Rufaro Faith Mazarura and fact-checked by Catherine Newhan. Theme and original music by Asha Ivanovich. Our sound design engineers are Sam Baer and Josh Hahn. I'm your host, Alternate, and we'll see you next time on the history of the world's greatest nightclubs. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80, live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste, the all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Today's episode is brought to you by the American Society of Magical Negroes, a fresh satirical comedy about a secret society of magical black people starring Justice Smith, David Allen Greer, Anne Lee Bogan, and Nicole Byer. As an official selection of Sundance 2024, the American Society of Magical Negroes has been heralded by critics as an uproariously sharp-edged satire and a must-see. Only in theaters this Friday. Visit the American Society of Magical Negroes Film.com to get tickets now.
Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. That makes us FACET for life now, I guess. (laughs) Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome. 